Well, I invite you to take uh, the sermon notes. If you grabbed a worship folder or if you're using the app, uh, they are there. Um, we've been talking about bicycles a lot lately, and I, and I thought of another one. I'm going to use this metaphor till it can't be used anymore, so just warnings. Um, growing up, learning to ride a bike. You know, there's something about being four or five years old, learning the bike, and, and seeing new frontiers ahead of you of what you can get into, new, new lands explored. And, you know, it, it's always amazing. I wanted to, you know, to explore a little bit more, and, and your parents... They make you think that you're exploring un, unfettered. But I, I know now what it's like. You know, you're only getting so far before they're right behind, you know, in, in those kind of things. But um, I had several different bikes. One of, you know, one of them I remember had, um, it was probably one of my first ones, but it, made, it was made to look like a dirt bike, a motorcycle dirt bike. I had one that had banana seat, because everybody in the 70s had a banana seat. And kids, you'll have to ask your parents what a banana seat is. Uh, um, but there was a phase in, in my early years with the bicycle that uh, my dad was riding a motorcycle at the time. And being like most boys, I wanted a motorcycle. But I wasn't going to get a motorcycle. Um, they didn't have uh, motorcycles with training wheels like I see nowadays. But, you know, my dad, being my dad and creative as he was, um, would take, he, he, you know, of course did the thing that most of us do. He, he took a baseball card and stuck that with a clothespin and attached it to the spokes of the, you know, and, and as fast as I could go, that thing sounded like a little engine to me. You know, to my untrained ears. Again, kids, you need to experience life with a baseball card stuck in the... But my dad took it a, a notch closer. And he, he ramped it up. Um, we were just talking about this the other day. That he was upgrading his motorcycle. And he was putting a new wind jammer on it and everything. And, and so he took the old windshield that was on his motorcycle and figured out how to attach it to my bike. So, I mean, I was, I was something. I mean, you, you just look at me coming, because you could hear me because of, you know, and here I am on this, this, with this wind jammer on a bicycle. And, and you know, I, the thing is, it looked motorcycle-ish enough to a kid like me that I was excited and that if I got fast enough and go into my kid's ear, it sounded like there. But the thing is, while we could have done more to make it look like a bicycle, a motorcycle on the outside, the reality of it is I had to still pedal to make that thing go. No matter all the bells and whistles on the outside of what it looked like, if I wasn't continuing to pedal and to move that bike, it wasn't going to go anywhere. It could look like a motorcycle, and I could appreciate it uh, as that, but I had to appreciate the bike for what it was. It was a bicycle. There's a tendency 
in, in the church and throughout church history where it seems that we can get caught up in trying to make it look like something and we forget what it is. That there's a, there's a pendulum swing, and, and I've, I've read some books on this and throughout church history, and, and the church tends to go to, from one extreme to the other. One extreme being where, where uh, the church looks just like the world in, in nearly every way. The other side where it is near complete separation from the world. And, and, and the, the pendulum continues to swing, and you have different groups. And the thing is, regardless of those two extremes, both views don't fully acknowledge God for who he is. That in their own ways, they, they miss that God, or they forget that God is creator and sustainer of the world but also that God, in who he is, continues to call creation to himself who is holy. That there's a creative and and a distinct tension that is held in place when we focus on who God is. And so Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, this church in Colossia, this little town that he had never visited, that, but he, he had taught their pastor, and their pastor has come, and we're seeing one side of this letter, but, but you can infer some things that are going on because of it. Uh, he is dealing with some teachers that have come into this little church and tried to impose their viewpoints on the people. And it seems like these teachers are really trying to conform the gospel into an image of what they want it to look like. And the issue isn't, is that their views don't hold the central message of the gospel, that all is complete in Christ. These leaders have a bent toward this, uh, what we consider a Gnostic understanding that that anything physical, fleshly, is worldly and, and is to be thrown away, dealt with, punished. And that only the spiritual side is worthy of anything. And, and so they, they, they throw away and, and they punish, and they, but they refuse to understand when they do that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. That, but they also had some Jewish tendencies. And they, had, as Greek believers, had probably watched a lot of the Jewish church that had been throughout the world that understood and leaned toward a belief that, that we should separate ourselves from the world through rules and activities. That there would be, uh, and so they kind of tended to make the church and wanted to make the church look and act more Jewish in some key areas. And its functions. So, so as we come into chapter two of Colossians, and and we're we're starting with verse sixteen, and uh, it begins with a word that we have to take notice of. It says, "Therefore," and if you've been around me long enough, when we see the word "therefore," we have to ask a question: 
What's that there for? It should impose a, a thought process in our hearts and in our minds of, well, maybe I need to take a look back and see what it says. And up to this point, Paul has constantly tried to reinforce that to this church that the essential necessity of knowing who Christ is and what he has done so that they can hold on to that truth, that they wouldn't get distracted, that they wouldn't lose focus. If you want to know what an imposter is, you, have to, you don't study the imposter, you study the true thing. And he's tried to make it clear to them and to us that Jesus is more than sufficient for salvation and in our daily life. That we don't need to add extra ingredients to, to finish out who God is and what he has done. In fact, we find that Paul believes that the only thing we put in to build faith and, and fruitfulness is our continued knowledge and growth in Christ because in Christ, God has made you fully alive. He has set you free. He's taken, as we talked about last week, the the written code, the, the written list of all our debts and all our mess-ups and all the places where we dishonored God and disobeyed God and were found guilty, and he has literally nailed them to the cross. And he has disarmed the powers and authorities through that cross. And because you are free, therefore, he goes and he he. He continues to point to the sufficiency and the primacy of Christ because it seems that some in Colossae have tried to convince the believers that acceptable spirituality was based on how well they observed certain codes of behavior or that we needed angels to be mediators between us and God. They had lost focus. Paul, Paul mentions in verse 16, diets. So what you ate and what you drank. He also mentions sacred days. There were religious festivals and, and new moon celebrations and Sabbath days. And because these false teachers had said that the truly spiritual, if you want to be like us, holier than holy, you know, if you want to be like us, then, well, you need to maintain this particular diet and properly observe all the holy days that we tell you about. And so this list of these teachings seems to come down to involve two separate classes of things. Things that authentic spirituality would, would allow and those, or even more importantly, can't do without and those things that we can't allow at all. And you have those two extremes. But, but as you look at this list, I think it's important that we would also remember, and I think it's easily forgotten, Paul wrote this. And if Paul wrote this, and while, he's in, while he may be in jail, we can't forget that Paul was a Pharisee. He was trained. He was a trained religious leader that lived under extremely strict compliance to a long 
an ever-growing list of rules and regulations. Rules and special days were his thing. It would be natural to see him say, yeah, that you need to do all these different things. But now at this point in his life and in maturity as he's grown and he's, and he's preached the gospel and he was confronted by Christ, he now understands that true spirituality doesn't come with just compliance to which laws because laws are just a shadow of the real thing. That, that the reality is, is Jesus. It, that, that those... Uh, those things that we try to put need to, to take a second place to the fact that Jesus is the life. He is the reality. And without that vital connection to the head, the church has no real standing. That if you take off the head, you lose the body. Life, it will not grow. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's designated that the Jewish law was a shadow of the good things to come that are found in Christ. That while it serves a purpose to help God's people, believers must not accept the shadow to the point that they miss the reality. In Christ, the real thing is made evident for us to live into that we continually look to Christ. If we get distracted on those other things, point back to Christ. Get back in, 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 in focusing in on Christ. And so Paul, certainly no enemy to self-discipline or self-denial. In fact, it's him in 1 Corinthians uh, that, that talks about beating his body and making it a slave so that he might not be disqualified in the race and for the prize nor was he a man that was indifferent to the practice of special days and weekly worship because all his count congregations met on the Lord's Day. And so as a Jewish Christian, he still observed the feasts of the Jewish calendar when he could. In Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 9, he shows himself ready to be, almost bend over backward to, to respect the convictions of these other believers and in respect to some of the same things that are mentioned here, days and rituals and regulations of the law. Even though he didn't necessarily believe those convictions were always justified, specifically to the Greek uh, believer. He taught churches to respect the convictions of other believers to not make an issue with them if at all possible because unity in the body of Christ was of far more importance in comparison to the consequences that division brings. But that doesn't mean that he gave in to everybody's positions. The problem was here was not Jewish Christians observing certain ancient rites and, and, and regulations at the time of the that this letter was written, Jewish Christians were regularly participating in, in worship in the temple. They were observing feasts and celebrations of the Jewish liturgical calendar and all that came with that and came with complete approval by, by the apostles. 
The problem wasn't even that some wise, discerning Gentile believers were joining the, the Jewish uh, Christians. The problem wasn't with fasting used properly as a, as a method of self-denial and preparation for prayer. The problem was that these issues that these teachers and others were putting so much force into was they were being taught as essential to salvation in the Christian life in the way that only Jesus is. I think we can safely conclude that it was this principle that was beneath these practices. It wasn't the practices themselves. It was that they were legislative in nature. That you must. That they were being required. The, to the point that, that the practices were insisted on by false teachers all have the effect of distracting them from Christ himself. And more importantly, what he has done in and continues to do in them as a result of true salvation that Paul has described in the previous verses. Remember, Paul said it's all been taken care of. It's complete. Live into Christ. He is the author, the perfecter of the faith. He's he's done all these these different things. The list is wide, and Paul is saying, look to him. As far as Paul was concerned, these teachers were substituting human works for the work of Christ as a basis of what they were being accepted before God. Paul couldn't and wouldn't tolerate that. They they were putting the emphasis in the wrong place. There there was a fundamental confusion in their teaching about salvation and and how they could mature in godliness. Instead of look to Christ and let him lead you, obey him in all things, it was look to me, follow me, and, and be like me. And so in Paul's gospel, authentic Christian faith finds its answers fundamentally profoundly and exclusively through Jesus Christ and his work. The disciplines that that we participate in as Christians are only as useful as they serve in the interests of the faith of Christ in in solving uh, what we're going into. Christ has already taken our active dependence upon him and our obedience to his commandments are what are primary. The practices of the Christian life must fit into an understanding of godly life and spiritual growth that arises naturally in light of all that Christ has already accomplished and yet that he still calls, him, calls us to himself. So when viewed in that way that all these things once considered vital under the law are now merely shadows of the real thing. There our attention, our focus must be on Christ. That those other things are, can be beneficial, but we have to keep the focus. And so the issues in Colossae, and, and even now, are that the gospel becomes captive to human opinion when members of the community choose to judge their brothers and sisters by standards that have no standing within the sphere of God's saving grace. It's only found in Christ. 
And so we see the danger in Colossa and multitudes of times since that, that the heart seems to find ways to marginalize Jesus, even if that's not the intention at the beginning. But, but what, what happens is we, we take these activities and, and things that are very true to us and mean a lot, and we start morphing them, and we lose focus, and all of a sudden, the, and we set them as the true foundation of our religious life and our hope. And they're just a shadow. They're not the real thing. Our hope isn't in those daily practices. Our hope is in Christ. And sooner or later, the steps become the focus, and Christ is forced into the background. Perhaps not explicitly, and I would, I would say not intentionally, but that's what happens. People become disqualified, not because their view of Christ is anything what should be, but, or that their trust isn't where in the saving work, but, but they become disqualified for the exterior things. The things that are on the outside. Cross, the cross of Christ must remain focused. Many years ago, my dad, and I, I don't know how many years he's been doing this, we'd, we'd see him and we'd be talking, and, and I, and I want to say it was right about the beginning of my ministry time, um, he started telling me something. And I didn't get it at first, but the, the older I get, the more I understand it. His words would be to me, it was usually a parting thing along with I love you is, Troy, remember to keep the main thing the main thing. It's a simple phrase. Troy, remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Because it's easy to, to get distracted. And I see this wisdom needing to be quoted often because there can be an apparent and continual difficulty in the church to keep the main thing the main thing. We can get so focused on the music. We can get focused on, on the programs and, and all these other things that we, we become, that becomes our identity when our identity is and should always be Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We can't afford to get distracted. We have to keep the main thing, the main thing, to keep Christ at the center, not only of our theology of salvation, but of our identity in the Christian life and our progress or growth in Christ-likeness. And so you ask why this problem is what it is. Why it becomes so constant and, and rampant, why Christians have found so many ways to lose their grip on Christ well, there's a number of different answers. First I could mention would be the problem of human pride. It resists the idea that we are helpless and dependent upon another. And it, so it wants to find a place for itself in Christian life and faith. The principle of self is never far removed from any error in theology or life. That same pride is, it leads to a way for us to look to judge oneself and others in the Christian faith. And so we start comparing ourselves. Well, I'm better than they are because look at this. 
And we are, you know, it's, it's easy for us to compare because we, we can look at the programs and, man, I can't begin to tell you how many, how many times I've seen, well, if you will just buy into this new program, everything is going to be solved. If you'll just read my book, if you'll do this Bible study, you know, it, 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 it's, it becomes this thing where, where we lose or we, we lose focus, but we also gain this sense of spiritual elitism rather than the genuine Christian humility that Christ has called us to. And so what happens is we can begin to promote a false form of zeal, and we make it really impressive. I mean, if you will just do this and this and this, and we get all these different movements of, uh, of people and zealously ad- advancing their, their viewpoints, and they come to think and speak about this program that will, will move you along in your spiritual life in, in extravagant terms, and it will solve all your problems. And the thing about that sort of zeal is it's appealing to us because we hear that there's a way to make it easier and faster. That victory over our sins and victory over our weakness is at hand if you just submit to these certain things. And we forget Christ is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the center of our focus. If we put our obedience and our faith in him, follow his ways, the other stuff falls in line. But it's so easy for us to get all the other stuff. And then then what happens is there's an eagerness on the part of all of us to conform and to be accepted and to be liked. Well, they're doing it. I got to be like them. And they, or, you know, they seem to be advancing so much farther. And so I'm just going to do what they do. And we, we take our focus off Christ. And virtually all these programs work well within that particular segment of the church. I'm not saying that they don't work. I'm not saying that they don't have value. What I am saying is we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And Paul would remind us as he's trying to do so in Colossae that that in the midst of all these programs and all these other things that may be proposed at one point or another, that we can't lose focus of the central tenets of the faith that we profess. We have to keep the main thing, the main thing, that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, that he suffered and died in our place on the cross so that by doing so he would satisfy the divine justice on on our behalf and he delivers us from an enslaving power of sin that he rose from the dead to raise us to a new and eternal life that our hope is in him and that he is in presence with his people through the Holy Spirit that we would then walk in love, righteousness, in obedience. We have to keep the main thing the main thing because the rest is just stuff. Let me say that again. We have to keep the main thing the main thing because the rest is just stuff. 
Anything that in any way detracts from the centrality of Christ, anything that amounts to the teaching, anything other than self, uh, Christ-centric faith in life needs to be evaluated and tested carefully against Scripture. The place of Christ in the divine plan of salvation cannot be replaced with religious activity. No matter how rigorous or sincere, we cannot please God through exertion or rituals. To imagine that we can achieve holiness on our own expresses that we have an inadequate understanding of Christ. Our job, our task as believers is that in everything to align our life with Christ and his calling to die to ourselves daily to pick up our cross and follow him. Remember, Jesus took all the Ten Commandments and summed them up into two different things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In these two things are summed up the Law and the Prophets. Keep your eyes on Christ. The rest is just stuff. We have to keep our focus. It's easy to get distracted with all the bells and whistles. You can put a windshield on if you want, but it doesn't make it a, a motorcycle. You can do all the exterior things and not have your heart right. You can look on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that counts. As the band comes, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, keep us centered in you. May we keep our focus in and on you in all things. That while we do our best humanly to adhere to the faith, may we not lose focus. That may we not misplace uh, the priorities of your calling. Your calling is to yourself. You call us to you. That if we would respond that if we would put our faith in you, that your word tells us we will have eternal life, that you've taken care of all the other stuff, that we must continually live into you, living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we, we ask for you to help us. Through your Holy Spirit, empower us to lean into you. Bind us together, not through the rules and regulations and, and how we may or may not do certain things. May bind us together in your presence through your Holy Spirit that we may be united because you loved us, you saved us, and you have made a way for us. And may that be our defining call to share with others. In your name we pray, amen.